This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrine Press. Stuff you're here to talk about in this episode include... An Edward Gorey RPG. The Templarios. Historical License. And Carlos Castaneda. Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds. His mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini Mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, The Big Red God. Good Night Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans. Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. Although the dice are actually sort of fluttering rather than rattling, and the miniatures are looking over their shoulders with expressions of abject terror, the Doritos are just drawings of lettuce, and that's not Peter Frampton. I'm not sure who it is, but it's dressed in an Edwardian ruff. I believe that we have entered a gory, ha pun intended, edition of the Gaming Hut, thanks to Patreon backer Arthur, who wants to know... What would an Edward Gorey-inspired RPG look like, and would it contain the Fantod pack as a mechanic? Robin, uh, I'm not sure that a podcast is precisely the right venue in which to discuss the visual genius of Edward Gorey, but he was also fortunately a verbal genius, so let's see what we can do, question mark? Right. Uh, so, uh, even if you do not have a, a, a gory section in your, um, bookshelf the way you do, Ken, mm-hmm. uh, you undoubtedly know by osmosis, uh, his, uh, work. You've seen it in gift shops. You've, uh, seen possibly the, uh, animated introduction to, uh, the PBS mystery series if you live in North America. He sort of is an heir to, uh, Charles Adams and his style. He has this beautiful line drawn style that is, it's referred to as gothic, but his figures actually are more likely to be dressed uh, in Edwardian or perhaps Victorian uh, outfits than in uh, anything resembling even the neo-gothic era. And he is the exemplar of uh, visual deadpan. <laughs> so uh, his drawings are uh, sort of calmly hilarious for yeah. um, reasons that are, are difficult to uh, detect other than their uh, sense of sort of black humor and their a love of the uh the uh, grotesque uh 
What else do we need to say about him? You also, uh, uh, one of his most famous things was the uh, set designs for the 1977 Broadway revival of Dracula that had Frank Langella in it. Uh, titles uh, include uh, The Doubtful Guest, The Willowdale Handcart, The uh, Gashley Crumb Tinies, most famously, The Abyssinary. He did a number of Abyssinaries. That's his most famous and his most brutally awful. Uh, he also did uh, illustrations for the covers of a lot of works, some of them normal stuff, because he used to work as a jacket designer at a big publisher, and some of them the great uh, young adult or, I guess, children's mysteries of uh, uh, children's horror, really, of, of John Belair had a lovely uh, Edward Gorey covers and frontispieces for a while. And then the great wisdom of publishing said, why why mess with perfection when you can just ruin it entirely? And they got different guys to draw them. But uh, anyway, he's he's uh, was, as, as I guess you said, osmotically uh, present in your life if you were of a certain age. And even now, um, you can certainly run across him with only a very little bit of effort. Uh, there are three big anthologies of his work, or technically amphigories of his work, that were published under the name Amphigory 1, 2, and 3. Uh, certainly the first two should be on the shelf of anyone who cares about uh, graphic art, and the third one is just great. And so, uh, there's, uh, a, there's yeah. a new biography out, apparently. I have not uh, read it, uh, but it's called Born to be Posthumous, The Eccentric Life and Mysterious Genius of Edward Gorey uh, by a, a writer named Mark Derry. And uh, apparently, uh, one of the challenges of this uh, biography is that he was just a very quiet, diligent person who worked a lot. And, and he was fairly private. He didn't, like, make a big screaming deal about things. And he liked cats. There's a lovely picture of him uh, sleeping on his couch, basically covered over with cats. Which, if you you know want to want to find a life goals hashtag, that's that's a good picture to look at. Anyway, speaking of pictures, we have lots of pictures. Uh, the first thing that an RPG inspired by Edward Gorey would look like, one hopes it would look like Edward Gorey, right? It would have lots of weird cross hatching and strange languid characters, and look like sort of um, production drawings from a failed Edwardian theater piece, like a lot of his stuff did. Uh, it would have shadows and weird little things that made no sense show up in it. I'm not sure if those would be GM intrusions or if there would be a random Fantod mechanic. Fantod is a gory word that he, uh, it, it means just a, a, a little uh, knickknack or an object. Uh, gory took it to mean a lot of things, uh, especially a sort of poppet-like doll that would show up in a lot of his works. And so uh, the Fantod is a gory word, like a lot of other gory words um, in, in his oeuvre. And so a random Fantod table would lead you to, as Arthur suggests, the Fantod pack, which is Gory's tarot deck of 20 cards with such titles as The Tunnel, uh, The Child, The Effigy, The Limb, etc., etc. Uh, lots of good things uh, going on with the uh, with the Fantod pack. And then uh, Gory basically provides a relatively straightforward tarot uh, reading system for his Fantod pack, but I suppose what you would have is sort of an Everway system where the, the cards would have specific meanings and you would turn them over and the, the players would figure out what's the worst thing that could happen. Robin, what's the core activity, as we say to other game designers? What's the right. core activity of the Edward Gorey RPG? Is it just staying alive as a Victorian orphan? Is it um, uh, uh, backing a play? Is it just whatever your character uh, decides uh, or, or picks randomly or is saddled with as their doom? I think that, yeah, that you're looking for some sort of, uh, you know, you are the last survivor sort of one-shot kind of deal. And I guess uh, to back up a bit, what I'm 
how would this become an RPG in the actual practical world of making RPGs? Uh, <laughs> which would mean that someone would license the rights uh, to a role-playing game from mm-hmm. Gory's estate. And then they would come to either uh, uh, you or me and say, look, we have the rights to all of these illustrations. And uh, perhaps we even have the, you know, here's, uh, he left a lot of images uh, unpublished uh, when he died in 2000. And uh, they still haven't all seen the light of day. So maybe the estate looks at all these pictures and says, we don't know what to do with these. Let's let's uh, give them to a game designer. And And so then my first question would be, do you really want to do this? Uh, because, of course, we're talking about a humor game uh, that, as you suggest, doesn't suggest a core activity, that conveys a mood, but doesn't provide you with characters. And so uh, I've done comedy games before in the past, and, I, and uh, you and I both know, Ken, that there's a ceiling on the reception for that, that you're mm-hmm. most likely to get a sort of a very few admirers who really love it, but it's it's unlikely to really take off as a as a sustained thing that a lot of people play. Although in the world of Kickstarter, um, I mean, actually, an Edward Gore RPG, and if you're listening out there, would be licensors of things that are doomed. Um, an Edward Gore RPG could probably do pretty well on Kickstarter because visual arts people like Kickstarters. Right. And so as long as you did not believe that this would take over the world, uh, and merely wanted to recoup your licensing and one hopes high dollar production costs, you could maybe, you know, you know, make a couple of nickels on an Edward Gorey RPG. And, and as a designer, I guess that would enhance your resume the way that a previous comedy game that a few people would admire, uh, you know, if it was a big successful Kickstarter, even though no one really played it that much. Mm-hmm. But how, how do we design something that people do play uh, often? And I guess the thing would be to just try and find, uh, basically you're trying to do gloom the RPG, um, and uh, which is... Uh, the art isn't by Gory, but it's in that vein. It's inspired uh, by by him and by others. And so I suppose you are uh, trying to, uh, you know, navigate a, a a world of of horror where you're a, a poppet or an effigy or you know person in a top hat without any skin, and your goal is to uh, outsmart and outlast the the disembodied leg and. Uh, the, the worried Edwardian, I suppose. And so, uh, I guess what you would do is, as make that challenge of designing it, the core activity is trying to find a way to, uh, create a satisfying narrative. So it would be a very, I think, sort of story form mechanism where you, uh, create a story that goes together and has a, uh, you know, a balance of competitive and, and creative elements and, uh, that it doesn't have necessarily a lot of, pre-supplied characters or or plot or what have you. It just has a mechanism by which uh, you and your pals at the gaming cafe uh, come up with a fun story. So to be somewhere... Uh, but I don't know how that makes it something... A role-playing game in particular, unless, of course, you... I guess if you embody one particular character the way that my old game Pantheon does, uh, it's technically a role-playing game, even yeah. though... Uh, a lot of people would not necessarily identify it as such. I mean, I think you could, I mean, you can, you can certainly take as a notion that you have character and the, the notion that if you are in a proper Edward Gorey game, you are doomed because that is what most of the Gorey fictions end with. One hesitates to say stories, but, uh, fictions, uh, end with is, uh, the, the title character suffering some sort of apposite or inapposite doom. 
Um, and, and in a similar fashion, you might say you, you, maybe you draw the character out of, um, a random deck that would be a bunch of gory illustrations, or you'd build them from a, a random table, sort of like Traveler, where you're rolling and you're like, oh, I am a neurasthenic centerist who loves foolishly or something like that. And then those uh, would point you to your doom. And then the Fantod deck uh, would, would unveil the form to which your doom takes. And so all the characters would sort of move through and maybe it'd be sort of like a wraith where the player on the left is the player who says, but meanwhile, what he doesn't, what Ogdred did not know is that um, uh, his daughter was dying of tuberculosis across town. And then, you sort of, you build your doom onto the, onto the next player over. So it's sort of a screw your neighbor, uh, uh, mechanic that provides the note of, of distant cruelty that I think a proper gory game would have. Uh, the humor would have to come mostly from the interplay of the, of the visuals. A lot of, a lot of humor games turn out to be remember this other thing that was funny as opposed to let's make an independent joke happen because independent jokes happen um, uh, emergently in play. You can't really force them. And so I think a lot of it is just going to be getting into the mood so that the absurdity of your situation uh, provides the humor as opposed to, oh, it's hilarious. He he died of um, uh, the croup. Uh, that, that's not funny except to say croup. Right. The, the humor has to be in the whatever the mechanic of the interaction between players is. Mm-hmm. And I think one way to possibly get at that would be to turn the wraith setup that you scribe on its head where your goal is not to be the one who survives uh, the longest, but you want to be the one who, uh, you know, goes first. And it is the job of the player who is messing with you <laughs> to draw Fantod cards to explain how you are saved in this instance. How your life is unaccountably prolonged. Yes. It's, we're, we are slowly reinventing gloom right here. <laughs> uh, it's, okay. Well, that is the problem is that this game already exists and just isn't a, it's an RPG. A, it's a card an game. An RPG. And, and, a, and a lovely card game by the great Keith Baker. But, but still, uh, that is, that, that is another argument because Keith obviously had the same problem that we do of how do you take a gory-esque uh, environment and make a, a game out of it? And, uh, he provided the, you're competing to your physical and disgusting family die off first. Um, uh, and we, and I, I think you could, you could sort of open that space out a little bit as indeed Gloom has been. Uh, from sort of a family narrative to, because I think a lot of gory protagonists seem more like, um, uh, uh, alienated individuals than they do, uh, scions of great family, or they are, but their family is not immediately relevant. There, there are gory house party and, and sort of mystery stories, but the classic gory protagonist is sort of a weirdo who is misunderstood and ailing, I think, uh, and then sometimes is just dead at the end. It, it could be about uh, your desire not to go to a party. And you get invited to a party to go and have fun. And then I think that, I think that's, that's an idea is that each of these games, uh, the gory playset, uh, the, the gory game is sort of its own central thing with this mechanic in the Fantod deck and the, and the random character generation. And then the scenarios or playsets all have names like the, the looming party. And then that you we're, let's play the looming party. And so the goal with all your characters is to not have to go to this party. And then the party is your doom. And, right. uh, so instead of trying to avoid death, uh, which has been done, mm-hmm. uh, you are trying to avoid uh, having uh, happiness ruin your worldview <laughs> and and make you leave the house and talk to people. Right. Or or it could be the unstrung harp, which is about an opera singer, I think. And and so you could have the unstrung harp playset where 
your character's goal is to meet the opera singer and the player's goal is to explain why they never get to meet the opera singer. And so the, the incongruity there, the ironic distance provides some of the fun, right? Right. Uh, and again, that gives you a dynamic that allows the, the other player to mess with you by putting, uh, obstacles in your way that, uh, would draw you closer to this, uh, horrible mundane happiness that your, mm-hmm. uh, character wishes, but the, you as author do not. And so, that might the inversion there might uh, create some uh, deadpan humor at, at the table that uh, uh, isn't just gloom with a critical hit table stapled to it. Uh, well, on that note, I think we can uh, head on uh, to the horrible uh, yet beautifully deadpan doom that is uh, uh, having to listen to a beautiful happiness-inducing commercial. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The rattle of machine gun fire and the uh, list of enemies and comrades up on the wall with red X's through them tell us that we are headed into another version of the crime blotter. And this time around, uh, we're going to uh, look at a uh, criminal phenomenon that follows a lot of the themes of this podcast, and uh, that is the uh, Knights Templar Cartel, Los Caballeros Templarios, uh, which is a, a drug cartel which only recently possibly became defunct, but, you know, drug cartels have a way of forming and reforming and coming back together. And uh, uh, so, as the name suggests, the idea that gangsters... Uh, want to be, uh, have cool, theatrically frightening personae is, uh, by no means original to, uh, Central and South American uh, drug cartels. But, uh, the one from, uh, Michoacan and Guerrero, uh, uh, decided, hey, uh, the Templars, that'd be a great model for us. So, Ken, how much, uh, was this group actually digging into uh, what the historical or mythic Templars were, and how much was it just sort of cool branding? Well, I mean, the uh, Knights Templar Quartel splinters off La Familia Michoacan in 
uh, which is a different crime organization, a different cartel in, uh, obviously Michigan state and, um, Michigan, the familia began as vigilantes against the other cartels and, uh, got recruited as the Gulf cartel to be a sub cartel split off from them in 2004, 2006, but it was always sort of a weirdo cartel and it had a, a big sort of a, a, a rural presence. It had a lot of, uh, religious, uh, involvement. It was much like, you know, the mafia, um, used to be, uh, uh hyper Catholic, uh, before, uh, it got busted up and, uh, you know, started making all that money. But the, the, the mafia came down out of the Sicilian hills and was very, very, um, invested in this sort of, uh, peasant, uh, version of Catholicism, folk Catholicism. Similarly, uh, the Michigan cartel had a lot of that going on. Although the guy who seems to have set it off in its very special road, a guy named um, uh, Nazario El Mas Loco Moreno Gonzalez, or El Chayo, depending on... I, I, I mean, he called himself El Mas Loco. It's not me. Don't come right. after me, cartel. It's not like Bugsy Siegel, where you weren't allowed to use a nickname. Right. He, he wrote a book. He wrote two books, in fact, called Thoughts of uh, El Mas Loco that he would give out and people would carry around. Uh, he was a Jehovah's Witness. He moved to America, became a Jehovah's Witness, and that sort of, I think exposed him that that sort of fracture zone between Catholicism and Jehovah's Witnessing exposed him to a lot of um, uh, unconventional ideas, um, got very into the work of a guy named John Eldridge, who wrote sort of a, who, who's a, what do I want to say, evangelical uh, guy who writes about masculinity and what, what, what is it about masculinity and how can you come to God and all kinds of good stuff like that. And he sort of f- said, this is the way to live. And, and Eldridge was very into the notion of knighthood as a model for Christian masculinity. And so I think Nazario may have picked it up from Eldridge, but the Templars, of course, are cool no matter who you are. And so, you know, uh, this is 2006, 2007. El Nazario is perfectly capable of using Wikipedia. He can find the Templar code as easily as I can. So the, the little book that you would carry around if you were part of his gang had the Templar code in it. And it had El Mas Loco's thought, and it had stuff from John Eldridge, and it had stuff from the Bible, and so that was the code by which you were supposed to live your life. So uh, it's at least as uh, – it's probably more authentic Templarism than, say, Freemasonic Templarism is, given that uh, there's lots of other people wandering around calling themselves Templars who are not, as far as I can tell, guarding the pilgrim roots to the, roots to the Holy Land. Um so anyway, um, he wrote, uh, these two sort of testaments, these, uh, the, these, uh, bodies of work and helped fight off the Zeta cartel invasion, became a, a, a big guy. And then in 2010 was supposedly killed by the cops, but people immediately in the hills said, Oh, he, uh, came back from the dead. He's out wandering around doing good like Elvis. And, um, so that sort of became the mystical inspiration for the actual splinting, splintering off of the Knights Templar cartel. They were like, we are going to follow our fallen leaders will and go and be our own cartel. And for a while they were in charge of like four Mexican states worth of stuff and were at war with the Jalisco cartel, um, to try and take over Jalisco. The reason you want to be in uh, charge of Jalisco and Michigan specifically is they are Pacific coast ports. 
And so if you're bringing cocaine or um, uh, opiates or anything else in um, to Mexico, those are good places to own. And the founders of the cartel, uh, Dionisio El Tio, Loya Plancarte, was arrested in January 2014. Uh, and then El Mas Loco, it turned out, was actually alive. <laughs> the, the mythic hero in the mountains was actually still alive. Actually just still there. The cops had uh, taken credit for a kill they didn't get. And then uh, the Federal Allies uh, definitely, for sure, gunned him down in March of 2014. And then at the end of March, uh, another of the founders of the Templars, Enrique La Chiva Plancarte Solis, was killed by the Navy, or Solis, I should say, killed by the Navy. And finally, Servando Latuta Gomez Martinez was arrested in February of 2015. So the main leadership of the cartel was basically beheaded over the period of about 13 months there in 2014 and 2015, uh, the survivors joined forces with the Jalisco cartel because now they were weak and um, uh, they were run by a guy named Ignacio El Cenizo Renteria Andrade and Pablo L500 Toscano Padilla. And both of them were taken out in 2017. Uh, El Cenizo was arrested in June and Pablo L500 was killed by gunmen in September of 2017. Probably La Nueva Familia Michoacana, because if you remember, uh, the Templars split off from the La Familia, the remnant of the La Familia, as is so often the way, went off and uh, nursed its wounds until it could come back and take revenge. And so it did. And so now the Jalisco cartel and um, uh, Nueva Familia are basically fighting over Michoacan now, although obviously, you know, this is one of the, it's a very fast moving world to keep track of organized crime. And it's not just Mexican organized crime that's like this, although it can be very dizzying when you sort of just dive into it and you're like, which one are the Zetas? I remember there were Zetas. Uh, but for example, uh, the reign of the, uh, of the Templars is about the same length, give or take, as the reign of the Capone outfit in Chicago. It's about seven years that Capone was top dog in Chicago. Uh, the Templars were top dog in Michigan for about that same period of time. So it, it's a uh, short life, but a merry one uh, in the in the cartels, I guess. Yes, it's a it's a world uh, without uh, retirement benefits. Mm-hmm. And the uh, sort of mystical side of this is is represented by the fact that there's a there's a blood oath. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, if that's a, a very useful thing to have to get your underlings to uh, swear fealty to you so that they don't. Uh, betray you, uh, either, uh, to, uh, the, uh, police or to fellow criminals. Although, of course, in this situation, the distinction between those two things is, uh, largely what angle you're looking at, because, of course, there's, uh, uh, high level corruption in, in both the army and the police and, uh, mm-hmm. all the way up to the presidency, it sounds like. And, and so, uh, you know, the, that adds, you know, an additional level of volatility to everything. So that if you can get people to not only swear an oath to you that has this mystical element, but you can uh, test their loyalty by uh, giving them all sorts of uh, uh, rules of conduct to, to go by. So, of course, this is where the, the Templar uh, code of conduct uh, comes in. And, and one uh, interesting and, and quite sensible measure among them is that uh, for a while, at least, uh, you had to submit to drug tests in order yeah. to be a member of the gang, because uh, as as we all know from the uh, De Palma uh, Scarface, uh, your ability to continue as a high-level 
drug operative uh, decreases when you're whacked out of your gourd on uh, on cocaine. So. And one of the one of the rules that they had, because again, uh, the Michoacan cartel began as a as a vigilante movement. One of the things that they did was they tried to stop meth dealing in Mexico because, first of all, they wanted to sell all the meth to Americans because screw the Americans. But and second of all. Uh, meth is terrible. <laughs> and, uh, again, just like your stereotypical cartoon version of the mafia, they all love mom and, and, and their sisters and their kids. And so they come back to their village or whatever and they see a bunch of people strung out on meth and they're super mad, just like you might be if you went back to your hometown and saw all the meth use. And, uh, instead of saying, gosh, that's a shame or writing a think piece on medium, you machine gun a bunch of people because you have that ability. And that's one of the things that they would do. And so that sort of, a uh, desire for purity uh, takes on this very ritual, very um, mystical connection because the, um, uh, uh, the the desire is, first of all, it's genuine. Uh, and second of all, it's very easily sacralized by this Templar oath. There's a book on, and believe me, the, the deeper you go into this stuff, the, the worse it gets. But there's a book on human sacrifice in, um, uh, non-state, by non-state actors, which I guess we should be briefly grateful for, that it's at least just non-state actors. But their argument is that a lot of these murders by, uh, ritual, ritually minded groups, such as the Templars, uh, take on the same practical role that human sacrifice used to carry out uh, back in ancient times or Aztec times. And so uh, they have, for example, pictures of uh, blood spattered altars of um, uh, Santa Muerte, which is a sort of uh, folk deity of death. And um, uh, there are various other variations of medieval and, uh, and, and Catholic imagery that get repurposed to be sort of sacralizing this uh orgy of blood and violence that their that their job requires them to engage in and templarism again gives you an excuse it's like why are you out murdering a bunch of people oh i'm doing it for god uh same reason the real templars were out murdering a bunch of people as they were doing it for god and i guess right. the question if, if you have a bunch of people participate in a uh, ritual murder together and mm-hmm. that of course is a uh, traumatic bonding experience it's a it's a horrific initiation but it also provides the sort of uh, controlling factor of, well, don't go off and kill these other people just because you get into a, an argument with them. I, the head of the uh, the group, get to decide uh, who gets sacrificed and who doesn't, who we... Uh, and so that means outside of this ritual killing space, you know, don't just go firing off at anyone for no reason, which, of course, is a another thing that causes criminal organizations to eventually fall apart is, you know, that having a bunch of uh, hot-tempered uh, killers uh, in your employ is uh, not a recipe for stability, and you want to no. <laughs> uh, have uh, control over them that is not just based on your uh, authority to intimidate them, but, you know, ha- having a uh, religious do we kill this person or don't kill this person question is uh, is also something that grants control to the leaders of the organization. Yeah, the, um, the, the, the sort of, you know, it was the same question that, you know, crusading leaders had as they went to the, the, the east, they went to the Outremer, and they've got a bunch of bloodthirsty killers who are basically the cartelistas of their day, and they're 
trying to keep them in line because there's no feudal oaths. It doesn't matter who you swore an oath to back in Lincolnshire or Provence or wherever because you're not there. The guy you swore an oath to is across the Mediterranean, and you could basically do anything you wanted. And so you have to build some sort of internal code into them. And I guess, you know, historians can bicker and argue about whether or not the real Templars kept to their code any more consistently than the Templarios kept to the Templar code. I assume it was maybe a little more consistently just because they lasted longer than seven years, but it was certainly plenty, I assume, of um, both sanctified murder and unsanctified behavior for which you felt really bad and then murdered the next guy really hard uh, to make up for it. Right. Well, the, the, the historical Templars had uh, the structural advantage of you going back and forth between the other side was not as uh, big an option, right? Because mm-hmm. right. the other side was a different culture. Yeah. Although again, there was, there was plenty of examples, maybe not in the first, uh, wave, but, uh, very shortly thereafter. And remember the Templars are, um, uh, uh, slightly late in the, uh, they're after the first crusade. They come around for the second crusade. Very shortly, there are in, uh, instances of individual, uh, knights or, or, uh, one assumes more often squires, uh, turning Turk, as it was called, and going over to the other side. Similarly, there are what were called Turkopoles, which would be, um, uh, people who were in theory service to some, uh, local, uh, Muslim lord who thought, hey, the Christians pay better and have better weapons. Let's switch sides. Or I just hate my boss. Let's switch sides. And there's lots of side switching in the real crusades as well. Yep. That's the eternal question. Blood oath on one side, mm-hmm. pile of loot on the other. What are we going to do? What do we do? Where do we go? Well, once we hit that eternal question, it's time to head on through this next commercial and see what lies on the other side. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Purchase indulgence for historical errors by joining such Patreon supporters as... Todd W. Olson. The Redacted Files Podcast. Craig Maloney. Jan Zaleski. And Rich Ranallo. The whir of the projector, the curl of smoke through the air, the stickiness under our feet... 
welcome us once more to the center seats of the cinema hut where we look up on the screen and say, that's not a period rough. <laughs> or do we, Robin? Period picks. Scott, everyone loves them. Everyone's always loved them. D.W. Griffith, God bless him, loved them. Uh, we love them now. You and I both love them. I think there's probably a pretty good chance that a period pick will wind up in the, um, uh, in the top 10 or maybe even the top three of our films for this year. Uh, but they all get stuff wrong because they have to. Why do we like it in some cases and get bent out of shape in others? And is it just me being persnickety or is there a reason to, uh, dislike, uh, historical license? Right. Uh, and so I, I think you're getting it at the nub of our question here, which is that, Everyone listening to this podcast is a pedant of some sort. I think it's safe to say, and the, but all <laughs> or of our aspires pedant- to pedantry at least. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> all of our pedantry, however, is situational. There are certain things that we that take us out of a film, or certain things where we go, "Oh yeah, it's just a movie that's that's historical license." And so I thought we'd explore uh, just for us where the differences between those uh, two things lie. Uh, and so uh, one of the first questions that I often want to ask myself. Is the inaccuracy something that is introduced in order to uh, fit the the piece? Is it there intentionally, or is it just an example of laziness? So, uh, for example, something that is just a, a kind of a standard period piece that is attempting uh, sort of basic realism or just sort of one level of sort of standard stylization. And if it makes a big point of how it is a period piece, a, a bit of dialogue that is anachronistic or a fashion choice, the, the period rough, as you pointed out, or, you know, are those nylons for nylons in 66? Those, those things uh, do kind of take me out of the piece. And it's because they could have got it right. There's no right. reason other than just a failure of research or a failure to uh, write period dialogue where it's like, well, all of those words were things that people said in 1962 or 1933, but this is a much more commonplace phrase now. And this just sort of rings wrong because it's a cliche now. It's not the way a character in that time would have said that those things. So those the littler things, the little naggy things, are the are the ones that are most likely to drive me crazy about something, uh, rather than the oh well they intentionally deviated from uh, history in order to make uh, the story uh, work. How about you? I mean, a lot of it depends. I mean, for a long time, I used to be that guy who couldn't watch a movie about Romans or Alexander the Great without yelling at the screen if there were stirrups on the screen, because, of course, they didn't have stirrups back then. And I would get very mad that everyone was riding around with stirrups. I still get mad whenever you see Romans fighting in a non-Roman way, because I think that seeing Romans fight the way Romans fought would be visually stunning and thrilling, and that even uh Kubrick, God bless him, was not quite able to get it right for Spartacus, and no one has gotten as close as Spartacus ever since. But Within me, I understand that it's very hard to get people just to stand in a line, much less to go through 10 years of Roman legionary drill just so that I get to see a battle not look like ass. Um, so I, I try and be a better person about that. Sometimes I, I look at a story, and uh, I guess the, the immediate example uh, to my mind is The Favorite, which is a great movie, uh, magnificent performances, but it does kind of leave out Queen Anne's husband, who was alive yeah. during most of the movie. 
and he's just not there. We're just pretending he never existed. And given that he had kind of a major role in British politics and in Queen Anne's life to have him just completely off screen, sort of, I, I, I spent much of the movie going, is, isn't, where's, where's the king or the, the prince consort rather? Where's, where's her poor husband, George? What's going on here? And, um, uh, and then eventually said, all right, they, they've made a command decision that he's never going to show up. And so that's just, I have to sort of roll with it. And again, you can see why he would have done it just to sort of straighten his triangle out. But I felt like it was a little bit of a disservice to characters that are presented on the screen in a given way. Um, and I, I minded much less, for example, the blaggarding of, um, uh, the Duke of Marlborough as a simpleton, because that's sort of the, the funny point the movie's making. Whereas, of course, in real life, he was, he was, uh, quite a, quite a gifted guy and a dab conspirator in his own right. So I, I didn't mind that as much because I could see that making his character, uh, the way that they made him, fed the story better, right? Right. And and I was even more forgiving of the ditching of the husband and the other historical compressions of, of that because, uh, and this comes to my next category of things I forgive, it is very heavily stylized. Yeah. Um, it is not operating in a realist mode. There are, you know, title cards. There's chapter heads. There's that uh, wonderful swiveling uh, fisheye camera. Fisheye lens, yeah. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, and, uh, it's not, and all of the shots from below. So it is not trying to make you feel that you are, uh, watching something that is taking part in that era, but it is clearly something that has uh, been taken and presented with several layers of artifice. And right. because it is so stylized, it's like, uh, it struck me more as, well, this is like, you know, Shakespeare's version of history. Right. Where, or Bollywood you know, version of history. Yeah. He, he wasn't afraid to jazz it up. And, uh, and, you know, that things are being distilled in order to make this more like a fable about, uh, power and domination and, uh, and love and power than, uh, trying to give you a, a history lesson. Uh, and so, uh, the fact that the husband is, is omitted in that didn't trouble me so much. But I remember at the time, conversely, uh, when Amadeus came out of being irked by the way that it just presents the Salieri killed Mozart theory, which we know is a canard as mm-hmm. historical fact within a more, uh, that's also a stylized film, but it is not calling attention to its stylization. And, uh, so the next question is, is this film going to mislead generations of people into thinking that something happened that didn't? And, and just like, oh, well, the king is, the prince consort is there, but we never see him or mention him is different from, oh, this, a uh, classical composer murdered this other classical composer. Right. Um, and, and I guess like- a lot of that is, is depends on how invested you are in the given story, because there was um, a movie, uh, Roland Emmerich made a movie, the name of which escapes me. And I'm not going to bother looking it up because it was a terrible movie and I shouldn't send anyone to it that um, uh, did the, uh, the, the Oxfordian theory about Shakespeare, the, the authorship controversy, which is one of my least favorite uh, things that if people actually believe that Shakespeare wasn't Shakespeare, right. I curl my nose, my lip at them because they right. are simpletons. And, and Ken, don't plug your ears, but the, the, so you don't have to look this up, people. It's, it's called anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's terrible because I said Roland Emmerich right at the top. But anyway, yeah. um, uh, it, it squanders Derek Jacobi. It's, it's a, it's a hideous film in every respect, including the moral one. And so I guess to, in a way, since I, objected to the entire premise of the film, I literally 
Well, that's actually a lie. I probably spent a lot of the time shouting at the screen and saying they were getting dates and, and things wrong as well, because that's how I respond to stuff. But, but the, because the premise was so awful, um, it immediately took me out and I was never uh, a partner in the, in the film. And I guess that's, uh, the equivalent of something like, um, uh, birth of a nation where you're watching it and it's like, Hey, let's all root for the clan. And one is perhaps more inclined to say, maybe we should not root for the clan. I think that that's a terrible idea. And so you can maybe admire it in the same way you admire, you know, just, you know, quality filmmaking, but you can't, submerge yourself into it the way that, say, Woodrow Wilson could. Right. And certainly over the years, the expectation that a period film has a glancing relationship to history has solidified. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, in the classic studio era, the scriptwriters uh, felt uh, enormous latitude to uh, uh, basically glance at the idea of who these people were and then throw them into a complete a fantasy in order to make the story work. And the idea that it was trying to tell you anything about history uh, was, uh, you know, a secondary consideration. And uh, to my mind, sort of the apotheosis of that is a uh, middling sort of uh, uh, quasi-Western from 1940 called the Santa Fe Trail, uh, which is uh, has Errol Flynn as Jeb Stewart and Ronald Reagan as uh, George Custer as sort of young super friends who come to know each other at West Point. Uh, and of course, in reality, they didn't overlap at all. They weren't friends. Um, and then, uh, and then it gets worse from there because, uh, uh <laughs> how Raymond Massey is the evil John Brown. And, uh, uh, and, the, and this film had a, uh, a propaganda purpose, which uh, brings us to another category of things that we, uh, and you've already sort of mentioned this, but something that has an overt, uh, agenda uh, behind it in in the way that it distorts history. But this time it was all about uh, trying to inspire Southerners to sign on uh, to the war effort and feel that they were part of uh, the war effort because isolationism was uh, a, a, a deeper tinge in the South. And the whole point of this was to say uh, that, uh, hey, the North and the South can get together and go off and, and, and work together and, and, and be pals. And of course, the uh, a thorough blackguarding of, of John Brown was necessary for that. And, and it wasn't even, you know, the most, uh, Warner Brothers was the, uh, most overtly propagandistic, uh, studio at that time. And this wasn't even the most egregious thing that they wound up doing in the name of the, the war effort. Uh, Michael yeah. Curtiz, who, who directed this, was also, uh, at about the same time foisted, uh, with Mission to Moscow. Mission to Moscow. In which, yes. A Stalinist the U.S. Classics. ambassador. Uh, got to call the shots and, uh, and basically they were required, uh, at, at the urging of, of, uh, FDR to, uh, create this, uh, this pro, not, not just pro Russian, but pro Stalin, uh, <laughs> uh, film, uh, uh, which then was, became inconvenient a few years later when the, when HUAC, uh, uh convened. <laughs> well, you know, this is, this is always the downside in praising Stalin. Someone's always going to take notes and blame you for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which brings us to another thing that the death of Stalin, of course, has one of the sort of classic versions of uh, historical inaccuracy on purpose, which is the compression of events. Uh, right. And so I, I, I'm happen- very, I'm very forgiving of compression of events because you do have to make things fit in a runtime and you do have to leave stuff out because otherwise it gets ungodly complex. And anyone who's read, I think, one book of history recognizes 
that's not a movie. <laughs> yeah. It can't be a movie. And I, mean, I don't even care what you've read. There is no period of history so simple that you could have just shot a movie of it as written, unless you're talking about periods where there's only one source left, like, you know, um, uh, and not all of those, frankly. And so, so the, um, and so something like Death of Stalin, it's like, I have no objection to the fact that they take events that happen over the better part of a year and mush them down into a couple of weeks. And the other things that they do with it to sort of take you out of the historicity, but put you into the comedy include, for example, the use of uh, broad regional English accents instead of terrible cod Russian accents or even very good Russian accents. And and in fact, not even consistent because everybody just speaks in their own accent. So Americans are speaking American accents. And that's another example of stylization signaling Mm. Uh, the fact that uh, you perhaps should go and look at Wikipedia afterwards if you really if you want really the, right. the true facts of the situation. But also it conjures, you know, the uh, the higher narrative truth of what happened, uh, even if it makes right. things uh, rollick around at the uh, farcical pacing. Right. And, and, and again, I mean, you can look at, for example, the career of Molotov and say he was a horrible person who deserved every bad thing that happened to him. But comedy demands a, a, a schlemiel, a sympathetic schlub. So you have to make Molotov that guy in the film. And, you know, given that Beria is being portrayed as a monster, it, it's hard to get super bent out of shape that Molotov gets to play off of him as the sort of weak-minded, uh, true believer comic foil, because that's necessary to make the, 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 the joke work. Although I could imagine someone being as bent out of shape uh, by the humanization of Molotov as you and I are over the demonization of John Brown uh, in uh, Santa Fe Trail, right? Right. So I think we've covered uh, all of our various subjectivities and can now uh, uh, move Sure as we could possibly be, there will be no historical inaccuracies whatsoever in whatever our next segment might happen to be. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agents Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time once again to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs, where we will briefly pause beneath the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, and oh, yep, she's still glowering at us, but well, we won't let that wreck our mood, because we know that we head on into the Edwardian parlor, which looks a lot like an Edward Gorey illustration, come to think of it. There <laughs> we have in... Uh, his smoking jacket, uh, our pal, the consulting occultist. And this time, uh, he's consulting with Patreon backer Wayne Rossi, who wants to know about 
Carlos Castaneda. And I guess we're going to get into our usual uh, uh, mystic versus occultist uh, waters in this one and our even more classic believer or charlatan. So, uh, Ken, uh, Carlos Castaneda was born in 1925 in Peru. He lived until 1998. And in between that, uh, there's a story to tell, which I believe you as the consulting occultist are going to start telling. Yeah. I mean, uh, Carlos Castaneda was a uh, anthropologist. He got a PhD in anthropology. He went out and he, uh, in the 60s, hung out with a guy who he said was a yaki a man of knowledge, a shaman named Don Juan Matus. And he wrote a book called The Teachings of Don Juan, which uh, sort of presented a version, let us say that, of the uh, Yaqui shamanic uh, beliefs as right. presented. And, and the Yaqui are an indigenous people who They're are... an indigenous uh, Indian tribe in uh, Mexico, basically in Sonora. So right, very convenient to UCLA. Uh, you can drive just south and you can meet them and do your sort of uh, field work in a non-threatening uh, way. And you can always get right back to uh, California if uh, things get uh, hairy. So, um, again... It was, uh, he, he published, uh, teachings of Don Juan. And I think the, the important thing to keep in mind is that he published it, uh, with UCLA press. It was not immediately a paperback crazy people bestseller that it became because it turned out, um, one of the things the Yaki do, uh, is they use psychoactive drugs to, uh, open up their minds. And that's something that shamans have done, uh, forever and ever and ever. But back in 1968, People didn't know that about shamans. That was an exciting new truth. I mean, I guess people did if they'd read John Allegro, but very people people had read John Allegro in those three years. So the the notion that if you dropped out and uh, and and uh, did drugs, you would be a better, nobler, wiser person with a vision of the cosmos, not just a stupid hippie, was very appealing to stupid hippies all over the world. And the, uh, the teachings of Don Juan sort of blew up and became a giant deal. And the question I think that anyone who's a fair-minded person asks is, at what point did Carlos Castaneda start making stuff up? And is it in his first book, which in theory he had to get past a tenure uh, committee or at least a, a peer review and was going to go into the university publishing system and was not necessarily aimed at a bunch of credulous dupe hippies or is it all of his later books? Um, and some people are said that there was no Don Juan Matus at all that uh, Castaneda either for good or bad reasons conflated a bunch of different Yaki that he met into one guy so that he could, you know, uh, straighten up the narrative and right. And not other scholars of the Yaki, would later observe, wait a minute, none of any of this has anything to do with the Yaki as we know them. Right. Um, and then, so the question is, is, uh, Don Juan imaginary? Was Don Juan one guy who was just wrong? <laughs> and so, uh, Castaneda just shows up and he picks the one bad shaman in the, in the bunch, or did Castaneda bring a lot right. of his and, own? And there is certainly a, a history in anthropology of, of people deliberately pulling the legs of, Anthropologists. Of anthropologists. It's a beautiful tradition. And I, uh, and if you're listening, indigenous people around the world keep doing it. But, but another thing is that anthropologists, again, over centuries have read what they wanted to read into 
the natives. And that's Margaret Mead in Samoa. That's people who, you know, find um, uh, peaceful, beautiful pacifism in the Brazilian rainforest where it has never been. You know, just people show up and they have their own preconceptions and they just read it on to the natives because you can take any text and read it any way you want, as Aristotle pointed out way before postmodernists got to it. But the... Um, uh, the thing is that maybe Castaneda is just a bad anthropologist and he went out and he was not lying so much as bad at his job. But the sort of idiocy that he wanted to believe turns out to be the same idiocy that a lot of hippies wanted to believe and he lucked into it. Now, I think it's pretty sure that his later books were a, a pile of codswallop and, and made up out of whole cloth. I don't think that there's anyone who believes those either represent genuine Yaqui wisdom or the genuine teachings even of the possibly fictive Don Juan that basically Castaneda, you know, started writing what sold. And as an author, you can't really blame him for it, but you can blame him as someone who is at, at the very least dragging the good name of the Yaqui Indians through the mud. And on the other hand is also um, uh, luring a bunch of idiot hippies out to the desert to die of uh, dehydration, or at least have very bad trips. Right. So and certainly uh, as, as with uh, many mystics, there are people who uh, recognize that it may be fictional yet nonetheless find uh, inspiration uh, in it and value the way that it uh, informed uh, the new age movement of which they are a part. And so that's not such a, I guess that's not a question of a believer or charlatan as, uh, you know, oh, well, there's a higher truth in it, uh, which mm-hmm. is a, a, uh, a, a common fallback position uh, that we are familiar with on this show. Right. And, and I think that there's a, I think that there's a, a, a tell that when you, the anthropologist, say that the, the native person has recognized you as a spiritual leader, mm-hmm. that's when you are definitely making things up. Right. And it's part <laughs> of a grand tradition of making things up because if you're going to, uh, invent a new religion, uh, you have to have some sort of uh, source for that. Right. And the question is, you know, uh, uh, what did you make up and how long ago was it made up? And so uh, in the Theosophists, they are hearkening back to uh, uh, hidden masters who are conveying truth to them. Other people will say that they received a, a prophecy, which they may or may not uh, believe in. And here, uh, you know, you've got to reference an older tradition uh, as you're creating something that is new or you're creating something syncretic, in this case, uh, shamanism for Westerners. Right. And he sort of said, um, oh, uh, Don Juan uh, called, recognized me as a Nagual, a magical uh, seer. And uh, that's why I have the authority to tell you all about uh, Tensegrity and uh, my other crazy uh, uh, belief systems. And, uh, that I think you can basically just assume is codswallop because it is. And then, so the, the thing that is, I guess, sort of interesting, uh, from a, a cult point of view is the degree to which the, the, first of all, the, the Yaki get picked, uh, and I, again, it's cause they're convenient to UCLA, but that, that sort of vocabulary becomes the, uh, the, the rapper on the burrito of mishmash, uh, feel yourself. The world is bigger than you. Don't buy four stereos. Uh, uh, mysticism that Castaneda was selling, uh, combined with magic and drug use. Uh, so, uh, the, the fun thing about Castaneda is, first of all, that he sort of blew up, became giant, and then I think is sort of gone now. I don't see him, you know, um, uh, around anymore. He doesn't get cited in the sort of crazy books that I read that often. Uh, even people who are writing about shamanism and drug use in a uh, wide-eyed, gullible way are generally not 
castanetists or ten segrists. They've sort of, he seems to be a flash in the pan that, uh, you know, some future Gary Lockman will mention in a paragraph and then move on. Is that your sense of, of Castaneda? I think I've heard a little bit more of people who are still, uh, uh lean toward the new age will cite him as sort of a, a, a source of, uh, inspiration not to be taken too literally. Um, and certainly, you know, in terms of his, the reception of that set of ideas at that time, he was instrumental in. Yeah, it was gigantic. I mean, he's the reason that people uh, who you're very tired of hearing at a party use the word shaman all the time, I right. think. He's one of the big guys behind it. And then poor Merkei Eliad um, uh, gets dragged in by having written the only remotely scholarly book on the subject. Poor guy. Right. And and I think, you know, part of the, but of course, obviously, the, the blot on the copy book is that he clearly presented something as being uh, true from our scholarly perspective and then wanted to, you know, leap over uh, into the uh, founding a, a new spiritual uh, tradition, which is uh, not an easier hurdle to leap. And so in 73, uh, he'd suddenly uh, and he was never a big publicity seeker other than writing his books. He wasn't, you know, a, right. A he didn't, he didn't go on talk shows and whatnot. Yeah. But mostly because people kept asking, did you make all this up? Right. And in 1973, he does an interview where he's pressed pretty hard by the journalist uh, to, uh, you know, show his receipts. And that's when he goes, uh, he withdraws from public life and then doesn't come back until the 90s with something that is more packaged and more sort of in the uh, the then thriving kind of new age tradition. So it's it's not the Yaki knowledge. It's called tensegrity. And it's a, a way of movement that's based on traditional uh, shamanic knowledge. So it's sort of trying to, you know, re-turn it back into pseudoscience and file off the the serial numbers and, and sell some merch. Right. And then, of course, that is the, uh, the the great American shamanic tradition is you take uh, wisdom and drug experiences and you turn it into fat money. So the, uh, the, the, uh, the other, I guess, question is, can you use uh, Castaneda in a game that is not set between 1968 and 1980 ish. Um, is, is Castaneda, is that, is that a thing that you have? I think you want to save him for fall of Delta green. He is, that right. is, yeah. that is his era. And, uh, mm-hmm. I think otherwise what you would do is, you know, a contemporary thing you would say, well, you go into this guy and you check out his bookshelf and he has, uh, Blavatsky and Castaneda and, you know, whoever's the, uh, you know, he, he has a secret on his shelf and that, that tells you something about that person's interests, mm-hmm. uh, as, you know, and it, it's, you know, he has, uh, he has Castaneda on one shelf and the Crowley is on another shelf and you have the sense that he's got more of a, uh, he more leans toward the Castaneda, but everybody's got to own a couple of things about Crowley. Mm-hmm. So you figure right. he's kind of okay. Uh, you know, so I was just thinking the, a, the C section of his, of his bookshelves is very big. Yes. So it's a, <laughs> a, a a marker of influence rather than a, uh, you know, a thing that you can bring in being chased by tensegrity experts. I mean, I guess you could have, um, uh, Don Juan Matus as an ultra terrestrial, the notion that, uh, uh, the John Keel has the notion that the ultra terrestrials come from another plane and mess with people. And that the three magi were the ultra terrestrials who showed up and said, Hey, your baby's Jesus. And then laughed themselves silly, uh, that Don Juan Matus would be exactly the same sort of figure that he's sort of a connected to vegetation and, and weird experiences in the desert. And he shows up and he gulls this, uh, simpleton anthropologist into spreading, uh, uh hippie bushwa. 
and then for purposes of his own, that it's uh, the, the ultra terrestrials have something in common, I think, with the Esoterror in that they get people to believe nonsense for the hell of it and create uh, insanity either by panicking uh, people in, in, in UFO uh, circumstances and whatnot, or simply um, uh, drop nonsense into the world for the for the sheer hijinks of it. And that could maybe be a way to look at it. Or, you know, you're hunting a uh, trickster. And uh, mm-hmm. you discover that, uh, you know, he was last seen in uh, Southern California in the 90s, uh, pioneering Tanksegrity. And before that, he was a hidden master. And now you have to mm-hmm. sort of use the documents as a way to, uh, well, he comes back every every little while. Where's, where's Trickster gone now? And you could sort of use that as a as a bank shot to, to find him. Uh, well, mm-hmm. uh, if there's anything that I know about podcasting, it's uh, as soon as you mention Trickster, it's... Uh, Time to get out of there, stop. or he will <laughs> he will steal your microphone at the at the very least. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll wave a quick goodbye and escape uh, before something terrible happens, and we'll be back next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Astvagelm, Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from whimsical doom alongside such Patreon backers as Ryan Mannix, Scott Stefanski, David Muscari, John Rogers, and Ross Ireland. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Walrus Revenge. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth High. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>